going to your butt. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to episode 106 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Join as always by Mary, a woman who letters home usually include a request for beer money. I am just an unopened envelope named Darren. How are we doing, Mary? I'm good. How are you? Oh, it's great. It's a lot of fun. It's, spring is in the air, so we, we can't complain of too, too much about that. Um, going to have a lot of fun tonight. We're going to have a good time tonight. And we're going to kind of talk about something we, we always like to talk about. You know, as you know, and you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the plight of the everyday soldier in the Civil War. You know, we've said many times that you know, corps are made of divisions, divisions are made of brigades, brigades of regiments, regiments of companies, but companies are made of husbands and fathers and brothers and these nameless and faceless people who've been lost to history. And we'd love to talk about them. And to that end. Uh, with the 160th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg on the horizon, we're going to speak with to a very unique set of letters. Um, those, of course, of John and Charlie Futch, um, Confederate soldiers in the Company K of the 3rd North Carolina. And if you want to speak about the Futch letters, there's really only one person to speak to in that end. It's the Robert Fleur Professor of Civil War Studies <laughs> and the Director of Civil War Institute of Gettysburg College, our friend Dr. Peter Carmichael, in my opinion. The man with the best job and the best hair in all of Civil War. <laughs> Welcome, Peter. How are we doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you for the compliment about the hair as well. That means more to me than the <laughs> about the Civil War. Well, oh, trust me, a lot of people are very envious of the, of the, of the locks that you have there. But, <laughs> but you, for, but for anybody who reads soldier letters, you know, you know. We're going to talk a lot about this going forward, but you know, you tend to, to read a lot about that Southern bravado. They have that certain tone and pride they all have. You know, A.J. Price, he was a soldier in a, who fought under Peter Mallet's North Carolina Battalion. You know, he wrote openly to his wife, uh, you know, about the pride and the confidence and the cause. Everyone's read Sam Watkins' diary. You know, guys, Admiral Small's got a great diary. Elijah Hunt Rhodes. And, and there's a lot of, you know, books about big name generals, and there's not a lot of books about the, the, the foot soldiers. You know, um, James Bromhall's got a good book called Private Confederacies, and, our, our, and Peter tonight has a fantastic book, The War of the Common Soldier. So we're going to take this opportunity to kind of talk about John Futch, and he's somebody who is very different in a lot of different ways. So, Peter, I think it's great to have you on. We really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on with us. But I think it's it's a great chance to tell his story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, for having me. I'm glad we we bumped into each other at the four at, score uh, of all places. Four score, yeah, this is great. <laughs> it was packed, and I never. I usually go during the week, and it was yeah filled with all kinds of Civil War folks. So I'm so glad that we had that spontaneous meeting, and that it's it's led to this. Um, well, you know, the John Fudge story uh, is one that I never thought actually even would exist because I was interested in an execution, the largest in Lee's army that occurred after Gettysburg, the execution of 10 men. Now, I knew that I'd be able to identify the 10 men in the third North Carolina who were shot for desertion. And here, in fact, you just mentioned the name Mallet. Uh, they killed an officer named Richard Mallet. And so they deserted and they killed an officer. Uh, so I knew the outline of the story, but it was all told through the papers. And because it was told through the papers, one never heard the voice of the common man, common soldier, and which again, I never expected to hear. I was looking at a little pamphlet entitled Tragedy of Mount Pelier. Now, I'm sorry that I don't remember the author's name, but as reading it, I thought, oh my God, wait, 
she is quoting the letters of one of the men who was executed. That man was John Fush. But what even then surprised me after that, and my friend Jim Brumall, who you just mentioned, and Jim Brumall's Private Confederacies is a great book. That, that's a fantastic read. If you like soldier stories, that's that's a great one to read. Mm-hmm. It's a smart book. It looks at the emotional life of these men. It's outstanding. So I had the letters from John Fudge that are housed at the North Carolina Department of History and Archives in Raleigh. I don't photocopy and uh, transcribe them. His, in fact, it was actually Jim's wife, but I had some research money. I paid Jim's wife to transcribe them. As we're reading, and Jim and I said, oh my God, wait, it doesn't appear that Butch actually wrote these letters. And if you look at the body of his correspondence, uh, you'll see that, in fact, there were numerous authors. Uh, most of them were barely literate themselves. And so what you get is John Fudge speaking to a comrade and he is, in a sense, translated is probably not the best word, but dictating is probably right. better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have that. Now, there is, again, another letter that's from John's brother, Charlie. And Charlie Fudge wrote early in the war that John tried to compose a letter home, uh, but that letter was passed around among some comrades and they laughed. They couldn't read it. No one could decipher it. So that was kind of the the final piece of evidence is, yeah, wait a minute, this guy is not literate or barely literate, right? I mean, literacy is not, you're not either literate or not literate. Mm-hmm. I mean, we often use that binary, but it's not the case. Literacy runs a spectrum, right? And he's on the lower end of that spectrum, John is. Um, so, you know, this correspondence, it offers us a window, as you've already alluded to, to a class of soldiers that we typically don't hear from. And uh, I don't know what your thoughts are about James McPherson's work on the common soldier. I think it's very important. And uh, I, 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 I like James McPherson a lot of different ways. I disagree on certain things with him, admittedly, but that's just with any good author. But I think I think with with when you're talking about the common soldier is is you're running into the stereotypes of that the Southern way where you know where, where people fight with valor, you know, mm-hmm. they, where they where they sit and they talk about dying with their face to the you know to the enemy and you know for my country and i think what john fudge's letters really illustrate is probably i don't want to say majority there's no way to quantify it but these are people who whether they were conscripted or signed up for patriotism but we know a lot of people who hate the job they're in and they can't get out of it right okay and for someone like fudge and we talk about his history with with martha and all that but he's somebody who clearly wanted no part of it. He wasn't fighting for anything specific, uh, wasn't a big slaveholding family or anything like that. And when you read his letters, it, it's painful because he, he missed his family. He was worried about his family. And he was somebody who, who, for the most part, wanted to get out. And you can see, it reminds me a lot of you read Rufus Dawes, where as you read him, you, you see that mental tread disappearing off the tire. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to a certain point, he's just about had it. Yeah, right. And, you know, we, we'll talk about those details about how he got to that point. Right. Yeah. But um, he goes in the face of a lot of the things you've read about the perceptions of, of a Southern soldier. Well, I, th- I think there's a number of important points that you've made. Uh, I think that the first is this stereotyping of the soldier. As there is one common soldier, right? A typical uh, soldier. And, 
I wanted the first sentence of my book to read, there is no common soldier in the Civil War. And my editors in the press said, yeah, we're not going to do that. <laughs> because the title of your book says, The War for the Common Soldier. But I think that within the introduction, I addressed the very point that you have made, that we have to resist the idea of stereotyping and seeing that every common soldier was a man of duty. They were men of duty, but that sense of duty was very different. And what we find, especially for really all men, it's malleable. It, it, and, and the soldiers adjust in a, to circumstances, and the circumstances dictate. So the rhetoric that we often read in letters comes from the privileged soldiers, the highly educated, and it is understandable for two reasons why we rely on them. It is the privileged soldiers who sent their letters home and the people back at home, uh, they were in a position to be able to save and to preserve them, not just in that moment, but from generation to generation. Imagine again, a poor soldier like John Fudge, who was a non-slave holder, but I should note that there were some Fudges in New Hanover County, which is north of Wilmington, who were, in fact, there was one who was a very prominent slaveholder. So it may be in terms of family ties, connections, he had some, he had a relationship to slavery, but he was dirt poor. There's, there's no doubt about that. So imagine the time and the care that Martha, his wife, had to take to save and preserve those letters. So this is, again, the critical point. When we think about the body of evidence that we have at our disposal, it is uh, imperfect. It's not representative because we all know that for Northern and Southern soldiers who were not well-educated, who did not come from means, we know that those letters, that they made it back home, it was always a trial, again, in that moment, but continuing on from generation to generation to be able to save it. Those letters have been lost. And so I get frustrated when people say, well, John Fudge, not the common soldier, right? Or to be a common soldier is to be one who wrote about the war, wrote about motivation with purpose, uh, with high ideas, with the rhetoric that you mentioned about the importance of honor, the importance of duty, the importance of courage. Uh, they meant, those men who wrote that, they meant that. There's no question about that. But to say that that's what represents the, the common soldier, the most important soldier, I think that once we get rid of that idea, that quest, that journey for the common soldier, we push that aside and take these men for who they were and remind ourselves that the voices who, from those soldiers who were at the bottom feeder of the army, we don't get access to them very often. Right. And uh, I'll just mention it now so I won't forget the site that everyone, all your listeners uh, should take the time to look at. It's called Private Voices. Private Voices. Private Voices two linguists and uh, the historian is Stephen Berry at the University of Georgia. Mm. It is a site devoted entirely to the letters of, they call them transitionally literate, right? Semi-literate to illiterate. Men who spoke their letters. The site is brilliant. All the letters are transcribed. They have a pretty good search engine on it. Private voices. But if you click in private voices in Google, or whatever you use, I'd make sure you stick Civil War on that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If you do private voices, you don't want the kids to burn, right? Put them out of the room. Uh, Mayor, so, make sure you do it on your work computer first. Yeah, time you do that I job. will. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I mean, you read those letters and you suddenly, as you pointed out, you get a glimpse of the war uh, where it's gritty and it's hard. And it's not surprising that these men who are, who are financially poor, whose families are on the brink, it's no shock that they are consumed by the daily struggles of life. And, and they're also consumed by the struggle to communicate on paper. Just imagine the Herculean efforts of these men who spent their entire lives face-to-face -face communication like us. And now suddenly they're thrust in a situation which in itself is demanding and trying every day. But now they have to try to communicate and explain what they're enduring on paper to people back home. And then, in a sense, continue to what? Take care of business, man. They got to worry about those families. They got to know what's going on down there. So much of the communication when you read the Fudge letters, though, did happen orally. That older men who would go to New Hanover County and come back to the Army, they came back with messages, came back with letters as well. So uh, there were a lot of different sort of what I'd say creative ways that the semi-literate soldiers used to be able to stay in touch with people back at home. Yeah, so so you know, John, John a little background on John, you know. So he, you know, he signs up originally signs up twice. He signs up first with the um with the 41st North Carolina, his October 61. And it was around this time um in that his first wife is is gonna die. Right, and right. he and and it's it's you try to read between the lines. You, it's tough to go in that gray area, but he's going to leave, and maybe that's why. But he's going to he's going to sign up again with the third North third North Carolina with his brother Charlie out of Garysburg, North Carolina. And if you read the initial letters, Charlie apparently can write or has mm -hmm. somebody writing for him because it's a night and day situation. Yeah, you know, right. and and he, they're going to be basically they're going to for the most part they're going to be off and they're going to go. But John's going to get sick. And he's going to spend some time in the Goldsburg Military Hospital. And his wife, Martha, is going to be there by his side. He's going to get remarried. And for the most part, he's going to fudge – this is John now – is going to get very emotionally distraught about the concept of leaving to go fight and go fight for war. And by all accounts, when you read them, I mean it's painful because it's emotional. And he talks about – you know, when he finally does have to go to camp, he's on the train, he's going by the hospital, he's longing for the memories of, of Martha. But this is kind of the beginning of what it was. And, you know, he's somebody who right off the bat, you know, is he, he's sick. He's going to try to get a medical discharge. His wife is going to try to push him on that. We'll talk about how that dynamic is going to play in later, too. But by the spring of 1863, you, you know, um, Fudge is going to be in a you know, he, he won't get the medical discharge and he's going to sink deeper and deeper into a real capital D depression. Right. And in back, and you mentioned before, back at home, Martha is going to be having stories about how the, their property is being, is being ravaged. They're, they're losing information. John's going to tell her and his broken, you know, whatever the, the language he uses to basically get the pistol and, you know, yeah. make it work. But this is the mentality. So now you're you're John Futch. You're in camp. You're sick. You're lonely. You're miserable. Your brother Charlie's there at this time, but now you're worried about the financial situation back home. Your wife and your family's livelihood and their their health, and you can just see the, you know, the concentric circles kind of just squeezing on him, and you can just see the mental anguish as you read these letters. Yeah, I, I think the first thing that you said that I think is an important point. 
is I was shocked by the emotional openness of Johnny Bush to his to his wife, mm-hmm. especially the, the letter in which he's on the train, he's going past his it's not Goldsboro, I don't remember, maybe it is Goldsboro, where he had spent some time in a hospital there and seeing that hospital, he was reminded of his wife coming there to visit him and to stay with him. And so there's another thing that breaks that mold of the Civil War soldier who, for whatever reason... Or the valiant, like, Southern gentleman, too. Like, there's this idea that in the South especially, and you wrote about this in in the chapter about this, like, you know, that there's this kind of mold they're expected to fit into. And and Fudge just, he, he does not fit that mold. Like, his letters, reading them are heartbreaking when he's having to leave that hospital. And I'm sure, you know, hearing from his wife that like how distressing things are back home that there are some like she's talking about union troops possibly raiding as well like that all that has to play into how he's feeling yeah absolutely right he's he didn't suffer silently as we often imagine civil soldiers doing there's certainly things were in disarray back in new hanover county it's hard to know what's going on her letter is also she had very limited education I can't figure much of the letter out. And she writes about women dressing up as soldiers at one point. She talks, she's right to the beginning of one of her, her letters, oh, everything's fine, but then it's clearly not fine. There's some kind of sickness that's spread in the county. I think one of the brothers or another close family member has passed away. Mm-hmm. So she says it's fine. <laughs> she outlines all these things uh, that are coming down hard on her. And then above all else, you know, she is making it abundantly clear that his place is not in the place of the Army in Northern Virginia, that he needs to find a way to get himself home. And she is adamant that he go to the surgeons again and try to get a certificate of disability and says, and he scolds him and says, you're not trying hard enough. You need to keep going back until you find your way out of this army. And I just want you all to think about that for a moment when you consider the Southern women of all classes who were white, the messages that they heard and that world that they inhabited, that message that came from the pulpit, that message that came from newspapers, that message that came from politicians, wherever they turned to be a good Confederate woman, to be a good Confederate wife, was to suffer silently. It was to send letters that were supportive, uh, letters that reminded the men in the ranks that their sacrifices were noble. She doesn't do anything like that at all. And so when we think about the Confederate home front, and too often, we see, oh, well, poor women, they were either just observers or, wait a minute, they just complained a lot because they were hungry and didn't have any mm-hmm. money. Well, when they complained, uh, that was a political point that they were making. And they didn't use the language that we might expect them to use as poor people. We don't hear her railing against the slave only class. We don't hear her railing against Jefferson Davis. But... Just because she didn't use the language we think she should have used, right? If she was truly issuing a protest against this war, right? Yeah. That's what she should have done. And you see that that creates an expectation. There's an expectation of ours and not of their reality. So I see her letters to be deeply political. I see her letters rooted to the situation of being a poor woman at war. And the most important point, since we all love Gettysburg so much, and we can, I think, remind everybody. You go into this battlefield and you look at these men and try to understand what they endured and how they made sense of this place. And you cannot do it by taking these soldiers and studying them in isolation. No. Their lives were 
intertwined with the people back home. That might seem to be stating the obvious, but we all know that we get caught up on that battlefield talking about troop movements, which is, of course, a fascination of mine as well. But we also need to take a deep breath. And if we're going to humanize these men, uh, we got to also connect them to those people back home. Absolutely. And you, you had you had a lot of, you know, the, the, the press pushing against it. I think that the, the idea of the wife writing letters like that is probably not that uncommon. You know, the deserter's confession came out. Right, yeah. that about that about that the fictional Georgian soldier that yeah, went around sure. about yeah. how he it's a story he deserts and he goes back to George and his wife goes you get your ass back to that right. that regiment you're defending right. your you uh, defend our honor hard. defend you right. know and so these are the stories that even these guys must have rolled their eyes about but I, you flash, know what but I, it, I, yeah I would think that they must have rolled their eyes at that that's, that's, uh, that's I that's rolled my eyes at it when I read yeah. it and you know I think with with Martha I think too you know. I think she knew how she felt about the war, but she couldn't put it into words in a letter. You're right. And I think, again, it's what we often expect of a person to make a critique of the war. What constitutes a critique? And nine times out of ten, the language that we, again, think that they should probably employ, it's not at their disposal, but that does not take away from the fact that they recognize that this war is not a war of their making. Yeah. But I think one of the points you made earlier, and it's a critical one, and we lose sight of this all the time, it's the lack of choice. Right? We want to see ordinary Americans, I don't care what period we study, but we want to see them as historical actors, right? Uh, you know, in the academy, they like to say agency. Give these people agency. Well, I understand and recognize the sincerity of, and the importance of trying to do that, but too often we do it at the risk of recognizing the history also happens to people in ways in which they are trapped. And that sense of entrapment, I think, comes out in these letters. And we need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. And that entrapment, you say concentric circles, I would think about that as well, you know, the different ways that coercive forces worked on these men. And they're 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 invisible to our eye, and they don't write about it. But one of the people that didn't like the chapter that you all read, and just one person didn't like it. Maybe probably more than one. But one person who was an important part of the book, he was one of my editors, he did not like the chapter. He stressed to me that my emphasis on executions was uh well, it was overemphasized. He said, you know, there were so oh. few executions, and here was my analogy. And I, I think it's an appropriate one. It's this. How many times did an enslaved child have to see his mama get whipped to know that this system, the backbone of it, is sheer and brutal violence? Mm-hmm. How many times did you have to see a man get shot to know uh, this doesn't happen very often, but it, it happened. And I, I don't want to be the guy that's going to have the misfortune to find myself tied to a stake and blindfolded. So I think that the executions, that's weighing on men's thinking as they make that decision or determination whether they're going to stay in the ranks or they're going to leave. There's a great set of letters from a guy named Kieber. I don't remember what North Carolina regiment he's in. He came into the war late, and in spring of 65, his letters survived. Confederate letters from the Army of Northern Virginia in the spring of 65 are rare as hen's teeth. His are good. And in it, his wife is doing the same thing. Get home, get home, get home, get home. And every day he watched, you know, squads and Confederates race toward the Union picket line. They weren't shooting at them. They threw down their muskets and they were obviously deserting and falling into Union hands. 
And so he saw that every day that he was utterly torn as to what to do. He wrote to his wife and said, well, I can do this, right? But I could risk getting shot doing that. Or I could come home, and if I make it, then I'll have to live like an outlaw, right? Mm-hmm. I can't stay at home. I'd have to live off in the woods. Or if I get caught and they bring me back, he wrote, or I could get shot. He said, that'd be the worst of all these three options. So I'm going to just hunker down here in this trench, look to the heavens, pray to Providence, and hope that, you know, things will work out. But that soldier, Kiever, you know, he spelled it out in ways that I think all men were thinking about these things. There's various options, but each option, there's a constraint, and it's a constraint. It has nothing to do with ideology. It has everything to do with practicality. And uh, and we never, ever want to lose sight of that, those, those physical constraints that they have in front but but speaking speaking of Futch, you know he's everything's coming he's in these letters from Martha. He's cold. He's hungry. And then Chancellorsville happens instead right. for his first real battle. Right. You know, and he's now he's going to be afraid he's going to be killed, and he survives it. Um, if I remember correctly, he gets all his gear stolen because he's like the real bad luck Brian in life. You know, <laughs> and 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 so, but the letters, you know, he's going to be writing a lot about about death. You know, and we talk, you know, and we'll. There's a really good book um, by Drew Gilpin Faust, and I think most people have read The Republic of Suffering, and it talks about the good be- the good death, that Ari Moriendi, right? And, you know, uh, Drew Gilpin Faust, Mary, she's, uh, Mary, she was a former president of Harvard, my former job, by the way. Everyone what had happened to you, right? Yeah, yeah my, my old job. So, but, she, but, but she talks a lot about about the good death, dying at peace with God and surrounded by family. And so this is going to start to creep in that Victorian era of death is going to start creeping into his mind as well, is he's going to see a lot of his, his comrades go down. And on July 2nd is when he's, he's going to lose his brother. And that's really going to throw gas on the fire uh, to this whole thing. And, you know, he was just, you know, that this July 2nd, Culp's Hill, you know, um, they're going to be under Major William Parsley in uh, Maryland Stewart's Brigade, and they're going to be going up, you know, primarily towards 149th New York, right up that slope. And, you know, Charlie's going to be shot. Sounds like it just, just hit him the top of the head. Sounds like a, that's what happened, right? Yeah. That's how Josh described yeah. You know, to a point they're where on, it may... They're on the ground, right? They're on the ground and they're loading their weapons. And you're right. A bullet came in. From how John's description of it, it sounds like it creased the top of his head. He, now, he could have actually been even hit by friendly fire. That's a possibility. We don't know that mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. at night and the Confederates that would have been coming from uh, east to west, right? So they're converging on lower Culp's Hill. Uh, the Fudges are attacking from north to south. Yes, north to south. So as they're converging on that point, it's possible that he got hit uh, by friendly fire. And then, you know, the thing that's so horrifying about that moment is that John said that uh, Charlie's mouth was moving. And of course, if he had a head wound, he was bleeding profusely and was streaming down his face, no doubt. And to see your brother like that, he can no longer speak. And John, he used John's words. Uh, he said, I, I hooded him off the field and hooded him off the field. And where he took them, you know, the hospital for the third North Carolina still stands. That's on the other side of Rock Creek. It's on private property. I've never been there. The surgeon for the North third North Carolina, if I had the book handy, I pulled it out here. Um, he actually, his memoirs survived and were published. They wow. don't mention the 
touches at all, but you get a pretty good graphic description of what that field hospital would have would have been like. I, I just want to say something real quickly though about Chancellorsville, uh, about John. I think what's striking that after the battle he got sick, physically ill. And again, the more I read and I'm sort of aware of how uh, soldiers' bodies responded to combat, this complete exhaustion, this complete physical breakdown. And again, I want to hesitate, we can talk about this later, about the use of PTSD, which I think is wildly overused in these and is not very helpful. Uh, they don't even have the word trauma. That doesn't mean they didn't suffer from uh, mm. some of these issues. There's no doubt they did. Yes, he got his things stolen as well. But I would just note about what he did not say. And I think that's important here. What he did not say is that he did not frame Chancellorsville as a great Confederate victory. He did not lament the passing of Stonewall Jackson. He did not exude the kind of confidence that we all know it uh, permeated the ranks of Lee's army. So I think that silence is important, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, if you if you recall, he said about Chancellorsville, he, he didn't use the word defecate. He said, so-and-so stained his pants. Don't tell anybody. And I guess it goes back to our point. And we, what, I think we should get back to this. I'm curious what you all think. The people have said to me that John Futch and other soldiers who were semi-literate, because they weren't beholden to these formalized ways of writing, that it freed them. And so ironically, they spoke or wrote, right? Letters that are more authentic, they're more gritty, they're more violent, they're more real, right? And I got to some first to sort of think about well, what makes a true war story? Or is that even a good question itself? But I think the point about Chancellorsville, and we can get back to Gettysburg here, is that when Fudge got to the Potomac River, and he writes about that, he knew that his connection to his family you know, it, it was at the breaking point. He was not going to be able to get letters on a routine basis. He might have, I don't know for sure, and Jim Brumos thought about this, he might have fought at Antietam. Because one of the things that's striking, he says how much he does not like Maryland. Mm -hmm. I know Charlie fought at Antietam over by the Moomaw farm. So, yeah, he looks, he's fatalistic, right? as he crosses the Potomac. I mean, most of his comrades in the army, they're playing around, splashing in the water, right? They've just come off another victory at Winchester. And there's John, and he's just a sense of dread, right? That's the word that they use. Uh, and now, of course, that sense of fatalism, right? He, he was right. Uh, and now he's yeah, awesome. He definitely has it after Chancellorsville. Like he wrote, um, I think this was to Martha, I thought that every man would be killed and there would not be enough to tell the tale to the rest. Yes, it's a great line that there were, no one would be mm -hmm. left. You know, we were, we were talking before about that Southern bravado thing, right? And what, what's fascinating when you read his letters, you have to remind yourself, is, you know, if you're feeling, if, if, you, if, if that sort of manliness that we'll talk about with Lee and Davis and their proclamations later on, but when you talk about that concept of the Southern valor, He's telling people this. He's not just writing this. So he's opening himself up to somebody who, who opens himself up to whatever scrutiny that he could get. And that's always fascinating to me about these letters, too, is that he's, he has the, you know, he has the, um, the guts. You mentioned his bravery. He had the guts to open up emotionally to people that went flew in the face to everything 
that they were trying to they were trying to go. And I've I've always found that fascinating about his letters. It is, and I think that if you you know look at other collections that you've read in the past, you know we all see something new every time. And now that you kind of have your eye for this emotional openness, I bet you'll find it with a lot of other men of all backgrounds mm -hmm. when it came to their comrades and when it came to the people back home. So uh, that is striking and it certainly breaks hard with what was the idea which you're talking about, that Southern soldier who, and who, who kept everything within, who put up a bold and determined front. Uh, we see at least in the letters, that was a place for them to be able to really express and read themselves. You know, one of the things that has struck me is that historians who insist that the darker side of the war has not been told because the soldiers themselves hid it from us. And certainly one could make that argument if you look at the letters from privileged soldiers, but th that's not a satisfying explanation to say they just hid it from us. I, I think that is a failure to actually understand how men perceived their world and then wrote about it. And they did it in such a way with an eye of who's listening, or I should say who's reading, right? Yeah. There's no doubt about that. And they wanted to be perceived a certain way on the home front. There's no doubt about that as well. But to make the leap then that they did not, they hid the real war, you know, I just don't find that to be, again, the final answer to this. I think we need to understand soldiers as writers. There's a, a guy, he's in Anderson's Brigade. His last name is Murphy. And his letters are at Duke University. I looked at him over the summer. And he wrote about taking his brother whose arm was shattered by a Union mini ball. They attacked that. What's the, uh, is it not the 17th Maine? What's the main regiment in the wheat field that's behind the stone wall? So 17th, what's, what's the, yeah. Yes. In the 19th, yeah. Yeah, okay, so 17th. I get those wrong every once in a while. Then they're well, attacking the like, well, 17th Maine behind that stone wall. The brother gets his arm shattered. And the letter from the, the, the one who survived describing picking up his brother, carrying him to the behind the line, still under fire. Man, that is a narrative of drama. That is a narrative in which the individual rises above the mayhem of combat. And that is a letter that some might say, look, that's not real. That's not fake. There's no blood. There's no terror. There's no fear. I don't know. I don't, I won't dismiss a letter like that, which is very different from the John Bunch letter. Well, well, speaking of Maine, there was the guy with the big mustache on Little Round Top who, who wrote a book that Alice Spear didn't appreciate too much about the glory. And so you can see it on the northern side, too, Absolutely. about how about how the glorification. But I right. think, you know, the Fudge letters tell a different story. And once Charlie went down, it, it was like whatever whatever last candle in his psyche was lit was was out at that point. And, you know, he was certainly he was his brother was dead. Um, they were doing this retreat from Gettysburg that it was that, you know, they lost that battle. Um, and a lot of these guys are barefoot. And he talks about being barefoot and shoes, you know, clothes. Yeah, and he said that he's got like sores on his feet and stuff. And he's right. like, you know, this is like as Lee's leaving and things just seem, you know, like you read Fitch's letters like. This just seems so miserable. And this is definitely when he, like, I mean, he definitely had a sadness about him before, but it just after losing Charlie and just being, I think, separated from his wife, you know, I think it's at this time he starts spending a lot of time just alone in his tent. 
Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. You get that sense of isolation. There's no doubt about. I'd say one thing about the retreat as well is that um, at least until the Potomac River, the Army of the Potomac is uh, like, excuse me, the Army of Northern Virginia, like the Army of the Potomac, uh, they're slogging across some pretty awful roads, the torrential rains. But we should always remind ourselves that logistically, Lee's army was still in a pretty good position as they made their way back to the Potomac, unlike the Army of the Potomac, right? Army of the Potomac supply lines are extended, and they're they're doing some hard marching, and they're not quite being supplied the way that they needed to be. It's when Fudge gets back across the river, gets back into Bunker Hill, which is just north of Winchester, that's when the physical conditions start to just unravel. And I don't know the answer to this, and maybe some of your uh, listeners know or have thought about it. What I'm shocked by is the great amount of forage that the Army in Northern Virginia, they captured, stole, whatever you want to say, collected, and got that back across the Potomac, got it back to Winchester. I, I'd love to know where all that stuff went. I, I know it didn't just disappear. Here is my point, is that these armies suffered a logistical breakdown uh, after Gettysburg. I think these letters about the condition of the army, here's a good example, in which to his, to Jefferson Davis, to his wife, there is an acknowledgement of defeat, but there is, I don't think, uh, he's not as candid as he probably could have been about the true condition of the army. So why in God's name is John Fudge, doesn't he have shoes? And why in God's name is his feet all blistered up? And he writes in that powerful letter, he said, we got plenty to eat up in Pennsylvania, uh, but we don't here in Virginia. He said, but he said, it doesn't matter to him, right? He doesn't want anything to eat. He says, because I'm going half crazy. That's exact direct quote from John yep. Fudge, going half crazy. Anyways, of course, uh, missing his brother John, excuse me, Charlie, which was a big, big part of that. I think he was very and haunted it, by seeing his brother get killed too, because he, you read the letters that he's writing to his wife, and he's always talking about the death in different ways, like you know when Charlie died, when he passed, and there was one letter where he's like, okay, well I'll tell you about it now. So clearly Martha had asked him, right, and he right, finally right. starts divulging more details about it. So I think that you, know, you get a, a good point. And we should note you can, I think, I think all these Fudge letters are transcribed on private voices. I'm pretty sure they're there. So you could, one could see that there, but you, I think you made a really good observation about the letters in which he wrote or spoke, we should say spoke. He spoke about Charlie's death. He gives graphic details. You've already alluded to this. He is doing all he can to bring his family members and his friends really to Charlie's side, his bedside. It is, again, you know, he can't give his brother the good Christian uh, burial that he wanted to. There's no casket, which truly bothered John. But he mentions that, and then he'll say some other things, and then he'll come back to Culp's Hill. Then he'll say a few other things, and then back to something about Charlie. And so you're right, he, he can't get this out of his mind and it is sort of his zigzagging right i mean mm -hmm. it's that's what's so great about these letters and about all letters that are spoken because you feel like you're right there you feel like you're listening to a man and you're listening to a man 
just trying to make sense of really almost incomprehensible. Uh, as we all know, we're all, I hope, a lot more poetic when we write than what we speak, right? We yep. can, we can sure. change the altar and do all those things. I'd like to think that's the case. But here, you know, there's no there's no rewrite. You're just speaking. And, and that that weighed on him, you know, a great deal. There's no doubt about mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and post Gettysburg is really when those a lot of those mass desertions start. Mm -hmm. A lot, a lot of the men are, are, you know, they've had it. They, they, they don't see it. And, and you know, and you read John's letters to Martha, and it's clear that he is, you know, despite the fact that some of these letters are being opened and read by the Confederates, that he's basically telling her, "I'm coming home soon. Whether one by hook or by crook, I'm, I'm going to be back, and you know, I'm back in North Carolina." And so. And Lee and Davis realized this dynamic and they started their, you know, that manly Southern campaign, I like to call it, where they're they're basically <laughs> talking about where Dave, David Davis is writing about you're fighting to protect your families and from those vengeful Yankees and those African-Americans who want to subjugate, you know, Southern whites. And they're trying to focus on all these heartstrings, basically saying, if you desert, you're not a, you're not a man. And they would right. use, almost use those words. And, you know, you're fighting. And Lee, of course, is going to praise this because he's going to love it. And he's challenging his men to keep fighting for their morality and for courage. And, and you know, you want their people, their families to be taken care of and united for Southern independence, rah, rah, rah. You know, one of those football halftime speeches. Right. And basically saying that, you know, if you leave, you are you know, unworthy of the manhood of a Southern soldier. All I can think of is, you know, is back in the future saying, you know, you call me yellow. <laughs> no, <laughs> and so that that's kind of what it is. And then you've got the Southern press who are doing this too. You know, we mentioned that deserter's confession earlier about the story, but for the Georgia soldier, but it's a multi-pronged attack basically to try to keep these men in camp. As you can imagine, a lot of these guys, you can imagine it. They have no shoes, which is weird because the battles fought over shoes, right, Pete? Wasn't that what I heard? Absolutely. You know, but the Civil War has happened to be over there. Jeez, man. They had just had a quartermaster out there. Distributed. They all walked out with those brand new Nikes, you know, exactly. But but they, these guys where, where their gear was falling apart, and you could see it. And, and this is really when I think, you know, with John Futch and, and some companions from the third North Carolina, they they'd had enough in August 20th, 1863. Along with twelve of his peers, they're going to um, they're going to make the decision, despite yeah, all the fact that what they've been hearing that they've had enough, and they're going to they're going to go home. Well, I think you know it's good. It's a good observation to see that in the face of one can call it rhetoric, one can call it one can maybe call it propaganda. I wouldn't, but somebody from Davis and from Lee, which is also found in the Confederate papers, that desertion is the loss of manliness. Again, I encourage us again. It is, I guess, maybe somewhat bravado, but there is a sincerity in that belief. There is an inseparability between doing one's duty and being a man, and it's political. And I think that's really important because I think too often at the battle, Gettysburg, when we talk about it today, we depoliticize these men and we depoliticize it by saying, well, they just fought for duty or they just fought for manliness or they just fought for honor. I mean, all of those constructs or concepts, they are connected, deeply connected to the politics of war, which again shows us one other important thing about the desertion that you described. I think too often that we see white Southerners, they acted in lockstep because they were um, obligated and committed to the idea of racial superiority. 
I have no doubt that uh, John Fletcher's racial views were not the racial views of us, what we have to do. I have no doubt about that. But I do know this, is that when John Fletcher and those 11 other men, when they made that decision, that they were going to slip out of camp in the middle of the night, that was not a decision that they're just sitting around, you know, thinking about home and like, you know what, let's give this a whirl. I mean, they knew and they decided to put cartridges in their cartridge boxes, put cartridges in their camp pockets. They had extra ammunition. One guy even had like a small derringer in case mm -hmm. he got a tight spot. That's calculated. Uh, that's thinking this through. They're all from the same area. They're all from that New Hanover County area down there. So they're all going in the same direction. Uh, they knew everything that they were risking. They knew they were risking that if they got caught, there would be severe military punishment. They knew they were risking that maybe within their community, they might be seen as a pariah. I mean, that's a real possibility that they weren't doing their duty. So that step that they took is a deeply political one. And uh, it's easy, I think, to sort of underestimate it. I should note, I don't think I told you all this, when we chatted at Four Score. Right after Thanksgiving, I was headed home from Connecticut doing some research. Got caught in traffic in New York City, of course. And so I could look at my phone. And I got an email from somebody I didn't know. She's in South Carolina. She said, I have a letter from a member of the third North Carolina after Gettysburg. And she said, and it mentions your guy, John Fudge. Wow. And she said, I'm, I'm going to sell this on eBay. It's like, oh, I'm like, please don't do that. I said, I'll. I said, oh, we have some funds at the Civil War Institute. I said, we'll buy it for special collections, right? So she sent it to me. That's, that's incredible. Right? Wow. So when it describes the fighting on July 3rd, the guy said he shot something like, I don't know, more than 120 rounds, something crazy, right? It was really pretty amazing. But he also mentioned John Fudge, mentioned him by name, mentioned the other conservators, and he wrote and informed, or I should say warned, this person, on the receiving end, watch out for these guys. So they're basically armed and dangerous. They mean business. They're determined to get back home. So stay the hell away from them as well. So I just to say that again is that you know this is not just some discontent Johnny Reb who's homesick or who's just mourning for his brother. Now that mourning has a lot to do with it, but there's more there. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think you know the act of desertion is also I just want to stress. It reminds us that this idea of white solidarity because of race, uh, we always have to be careful there because you'll always find cracks in it. Always. You'll find cracks in it, even in the post-war period, at the height of segregation and Jim Crow, you'll find cracks in it. Not many then, I'll be the first to say that, not many, but you'll find it there as well. Yeah, so they're gonna. They're, to your point, they're they're gonna leave at night. They're gonna stay off the main roads. They're gonna go prime. They're, they're you know they they know what they're doing. They're gonna go three hundred miles, yeah. and eventually they're gonna end up getting to um the Kanawha Canal in uh, Fluvanna County, Virginia, and they're gonna they're gonna run into the forty first North Carolina, under Richardson Mallet, different Mallet than the guy we mentioned before, but same same last name, and it's gonna end up in a situation where they're gonna get into a firefight with these guys. And, and Mallet is going to be shot in the chest and he's going to die. 
And I think of what one guy I think escapes, but the rest of them get caught. One of the guys escapes. One guy gets seriously wounded, so they're down mm-hmm. to ten. Right. right. And they're they're in for now, and they you know it's probably a miracle they weren't all shot on sight. But the, these you know yeah. these Carolinians they they stuck stuck to them, and they get shipped them off to a Castle Thunder prison in Richmond. And you know but there was no doubt. Out. No one yeah, was no, that's that's not not too many good places. <laughs> like, you know, I think Belle Isle's probably a little better. At least you're on the water. You know, Belle, barely better, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but Castle Castle Thunder was so awful. That even uh, some committee for the Confederate Congress uh, issued a report basically stating these conditions are subhuman and we got to change it. So wow. the congressional committee comes out and said, "Like, yeah, this is not good. We got no, no." But I think I don't think it was any doubt what was going to happen to them. Obviously, they they deserted. They they shot and killed a rebel officer, and um, you know Lee, of course, is firmly behind you know um, executing deserters at this point. Um, the North Carolina, you mentioned your book, the North Carolina men really didn't have any sort of a, appeal options. They didn't really have any sort of. Yeah, they were not allowed to have any communication with family members, which, of course, in that moment, they wouldn't have been able to reach them in time. But they had, to my knowledge, no final letters were allowed, no communication with any comrades whatsoever. I'm not sure if there was a court martial or not. Uh, possibly. I mean, I mean, like you said, the verdict was, you know, it was predetermined. And then they're, they're put on trains. And here's an important part of this, right? The descriptions of these men waiting for the train outside Castle Thunder are telling. They're descriptions from the newspapers. Right? And they want to ensure that these men are not seen in a sympathetic light. So they don't give them names. They have no background. They have no history. There's no mention that most of these men had solid combat records, including John Futch. I mean, we pointed out that John wasn't happy in the ranks, but he was still in the ranks. Mm-hmm. Yep. They, and what they do is they emphasize, and it's really striking to me, their physical appearance. Now, whether those descriptions are accurate or not is really beside the point. But the descriptions were intended to animalize these men right because it was a firm belief that you could actually through physical appearance that you could get a, a window into the character of a person and i think you know i don't know this verbatim but it was the reporter uh stated that these men basically had contempt for life that you could see they had craven hearts but you could see it you, you could see that these were men uh who lacked character and i think there's an important part point for all of us when we look at sources. Now, there is a situation where you're not trying to say, oh, this is what they must have looked like. That's not the question. The question is, why did the reporters for the Richmond papers, why did they feel compelled to depict these Confederate deserters, including John French? Why did they feel compelled to do that? Why did they stress physical appearance? What are they trying to do here? Well, there's a political purpose here, right? They, they want to ensure that people in the South, when they read this, that they don't want their honor, their sense of manliness to be violated by, to be darkened by an act of, of desertion. Mm-hmm. And so they put these guys back on the trains and sent them back to the Army in Northern Virginia, which yeah, is uh, Johnson's division to Montpelier, which is an orange county. 
Right. And they're in, what they're doing is introducing class into it at that point. Yeah. They're, 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 they're saying these, they, they broke away from this, the Southern, you know, the Southern model. And then, so they're, they're below what we're on. So they're going to be put on that train. They're going to be heading over to, um, to they're, Gordonsville, like Virginia. Said, they're unworthy, they're unworthy to be men. That's a right. Yeah. Point. Here's again, another thing for us to think about is that we see these poor Confederates and I've heard often, and these are serious minded people who are not trying to be judgy about the past. They think that non-slaveholding Confederates were duped, used by slaveholders, fighting in a war that was not theirs. And I think that what we need to remind ourselves of is that John Fudge, I have no idea about his politics in the war, but we can probably agree that even though he did not own slaves, he certainly believed in the institution of slavery. I mean, that's just, I think, a given. Mm -hmm. right? I think that we can also see that that neighbor, neighbor, excuse me, well, he probably was a neighbor, but the Fudge who had some serious money and a number of slaves. Now, one might say he should have resented that dude, man. He's the family member that's got all the wealth. He's the one that's got his slaves working mm -hmm. for him. But I think that we can see that where poor and rich people can still share the same values and the values of honor and manliness, that's a strong bond. And then you get that bond seared on the battlefield. Well, you know, don't now suddenly say to me, well, these men lost their class identity and they are being duped, misled by these right. Confederate officers. I think that's about as historical as you can get. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a really great account of uh, from uh, Gordon's Brigade uh, on July 1st. Uh, am I getting that right? It's, it's Evans. It's, it's Gordon. Yep. It's, it's Gordon at that time. And this letter is John B. Gordon riding up. This is a wartime letter, riding up and down the lines, right, urging his men to move forward. And what does he say to them? Remember your wives, right? Remember the women. Remember the men that you've lost, and remember that their honor right, depends upon you to fight these black Republicans. Okay. Talking about a speech before a you know a football game or a basketball game, John B. Gordon just gave it. Yeah, uh, you know that that message one is is one that's not that transcends narrow class ways, and he's not manipulating anyone because it's the common cultural language that they all believed in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. And these guys broke the code by by deserting, and they by no means were the only deserters. But it, it, there's there's a reason why it's the largest execution that people talk about it is when they get to Montpelier yes. and, and and you can just you can just imagine you know they're going to get there on September 4th and, and they're told you know this is these these guys are from Maryland Stewart's Brigade and Stewart's going to be there and you know they're going to get there late in the day and, and that next morning is when they're going to learn their fate by Reverend George Patterson and they're going to be the, he's a chaplain of the third North Carolina and he's basically tell them you know that good death we talked about. Prepare for the afterlife, and and think about think about basically what you did, what you did wrong. But you wanna you wanna die with peace with God, and 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 that, and that was a big deal. But and again, when we talk about the details of the execution, it it was it was a message being sent, without a doubt, and and a message being sent to the living, right? More important, right. that night before they had them uh, tight security, as we would say, around the camp. Again, they had no conversations with any of their comrades. That's when Patterson met with them. 
supposedly one of the correspondents, I believe, got access uh, to what had transpired. But what did the correspondents in the newspaper stress that all of these men, uh, that they were godless? And, and you know, it's sort of an irony that the reporter suggested that, well, you know, thank God we're shooting these men because in shooting them, we gave them an opportunity to accept Christ as their savior. So they, they got saved, they got baptized. It's what happened, right? <laughs> but we did it for them. So, which is again is a lie. I mean, John Fletcher, in many of his letters, and he drew a finger pointing up to the heavens. Uh, mm -hmm. He made references to God all the time. And, and again, here is one of those rare opportunities where you can take a source and you recognize that it's, you want to call it propaganda, that's fine, but that the source that is being used to uh, to destroy reputations, destroy lives, that's what those newspaper accounts did in my mind. And thank God for John Fletcher's letters because without them, we would not be able to get a more accurate and complex picture of these men. We would be left with accounts that demonize them. And so it's rare, at least in my career as a historian, in which I feel like, oh, man, I got a source here that's going to set the record straight. I don't like to ever say that very often because there's usually more than one interpretation, but it was set the record straight there. This was mm -hmm. absolutely wrong what had happened to them. And then the survivors of Johnson's division, as we all know, how long was the fighting on morning of July 3rd for those guys? What, five, six hours, yeah. roughly? It's the longest yeah. sustained fighting in the Battle of Gettysburg was on Culp's yeah. Hill. People don't, people never think about that, but they're talking six hours of yeah. climbing up that slope that everybody's walked right. on. Um, Allegheny Johnson's guy is going against those five brigades of George Green, and it, that's 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 some that's ground zero Civil War combat right there. A absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you think of those men who survived? Now I might get this wrong, but I know that we all know that one of the pontoon bridges across the Potomac was destroyed. So some of the men forded. I don't know if they did or not. I know uh, Avery's brigade did, and one of the members of Avery's brigade said that when they got to the Potomac, he said the water was so high. And he might have been short for all I know. <laughs> the water was up to his neck. And he said, as they were fording, you know, the current was strong. He said that there were some wagons, ambulances. And he said the water took those ambulances, those wagons, and flipped them over. And he said he watched these wounded men, utterly helpless, watched them drown. Said, Hell, you go through all that on Culp's Hill. Then you see that at the Potomac River, right? And then now you're forced. Uh, to get outside Montpelier, where we think the execution occurred. We don't know for certain, but it's in front of Montpelier, right? There's a flat ground there, and that probably, probably mm -hmm. where it happened. Yeah, and they make a spectacle, but Allegheny Johnson, he's going to be riding in with the big Confederate flag to send the message. All the men are there. They're told to leave their muskets behind, and, and they and they do it for, you know, to drive home that resolve of the Confederacy. And, and, you know, and the, they march on those condemned men um, and the traditional, you have the 10 guys, five with blanks, five with actual bullets. And, and it's 13, 14 feet away they stood from these. That's the, it's amazing to think about it. And, and these people come in and it's just, you can just imagine it. You know, they, they, they're blindfolded. They hear the drums beating. Um, and they're, you know, they're led to those stakes and they're they have to lean down. They're tied to them. They put the the handkerchief over their hat and then they pull the hat down over it and and um in the whole the whole division is there to watch it it's horrible yeah and you can only i mean everyone's read a lot of letters from men that witnessed executions and 
uh, there's one of the few things that one can say that there's hardly there are a few men. I can think of one guy, William Pegram, who's a Confederate artillery battalion commander. He saw an execution. He called it a solemn sight for most men uh, when they saw that. Uh, it was a, a harrowing sight. It was mm-hmm. a sight that they never ever wanted to experience again. So there is, but that's the point, man. The point is, is to scare the hell out of the living. And we should note that they played the dead march, as you mentioned. And I don't know this for a fact, but regulations would have had all the 10 condemned soldiers marched in front of the entire division. Right? So they marched all the way around the hollow square. Then the 10 stakes are there. And the accounts are pretty graphic and detailed about what then happened with the minister going and speaking to each of the condemned soldiers. We don't know what those final words were. And then put down on their knees, arms tied behind their backs to those what look like small crosses, right? The blindfold on, as you mentioned as well. But that moment, the terrifying moment, uh, horrifying moment of silence. Silence as the firing squads get into formation. As you point out, yeah, there's 10 men in each firing squad. There's 100 soldiers there as well. And it's during that silence that some of the condemned started to yell out. Uh, one yelled out for his mother, another one crying out for mercy, another begging, uh, crying out to God. It's a horrible thing. Uh, was John Fudge one of the soldiers? We'll never know. And what were his last thoughts? Right? Was he thinking about his wife back in North Carolina and her infant child? Was he thinking about Charlie and Culp's Hill? Uh, or was he so overcome by fear that his mind just went blank? And then when that command came, that command that all these men had heard on so many battlefields, ready, aim, fire, 100 guns, right? Blast away. Smoke cleared. And two men, grievously wounded, still living. So they had reserve companies. They came up, I suspect, at very close range unleashed another round of volleys, did the job. Still not over. They take the entire division and march them by the corpses at slow time, at slow time. And the reaction to this is hard to gauge because there's so few accounts. Uh, But I have read men of the third North Carolina who first horrified by what had happened in terms of the execution, but they believe that when Richard Mallett got shot and when he was killed, that that gun battle on the James River, they thought that was a legitimate military action. I've had people get angry at me, particularly ex-military, who insist that John Fudge abandoned his comrades and this is what he deserved. Certainly one's entitled to that perspective, but if we want to think historically about it, one I think would have a different opinion about it because mm-hmm. That's what I said to this guy. So, well, that's fine. I said, but the men in the third North Carolina, a lot of them didn't feel that way about Fudge and about these other soldiers. They saw that these men uh, considered that their duty that resided back in New Hanover County. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, what did follow was the Richmond newspapers, account after account, highlighting the execution and then reminding particularly the women at home. Why did this happen? It happened because of you, right? You wrote those letters. Stop writing letters, begging, demanding for men to go home. That's why they're doing it. And that's I think, one more thing to say on the battlefield here today at Gettysburg. The idea that that battlefield is an arena in which white men fought and nobody else. It's just 
flat out wrong. Completely, yeah, <clears throat> completely agree. Flat out, flat out wrong. It's also flat out wrong just to get a side note here as well. Battlefield has a lot of black folks on it. And for a very long time, we've not talked about it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's because of collusion. I know it's not because of that. It's just us thinking about the battle differently. How many enslaved men were with Lee's army? At least 10,000, if not more. Mm-hmm. They didn't leave it back in Virginia. Right? Yep. <laughs> They're right there. Yeah, I take groups to pick a charge. I always have them look in the Spangler Woods and have them imagine what would they have seen on July 3rd. Yeah. Different things. They have seen a lot of enslaved men back there as well. Yeah. But to get back to you know to, to the John Fudge story, uh, one of the things is, and I don't want to call it uplifting. I'm kind of missing the word here. How about just? I was giving a talk near Wilmington to the people who showed up because they saw the advertisement in the Wilmington paper. Uh, we're descendants of John Fudge, of the Fudge family, right? Wow. It's super cool, right? They had mentioned to me that there were other Fudges named John. I don't know if they were named after the Confederate John. I think probably not. Who knows? But the point's this. The idea that was put forth by the Richmond Papers at the time, that this desertion was so disgraceful, that these men had dishonored their families, not just in the now, but for generations to come. You know what? That's just not, didn't happen. No. Didn't happen. People in New Hanover County understood that these men did what they thought was the right thing to do for their families. And they did not excommunicate them uh, from the family memory or cut them out of the family tree. They were, they were there. Mm. Yeah, and for Fudge personally, that internal struggle, you know, basically, I don't want to say forced nationalism against against his natural survival instincts, but but you know, he he weighed out, you know, what his priorities were, and it, his priorities were clearly with home, mm-hmm. and you know, you have to think that he signed up. My own opinion is he signed up a second time because his brother probably they probably well, signed together. Conscription's looming, right? And there's conscription, right? So that's probably so maybe so, but you know he did he did, was part of it before, and so you know the desertion thing, you know desertion, you know basically by class was you know it wasn't it was it wasn't so much in this case about challenging that Confederate system, you know that the, the whole thing they weren't deserting it to to stick it to Johnny Reb to stick it to right. Jeff Davis, you know they're doing it to escape that world of misery that they that and this is speaking of Fudge now. That they that they were subjected to, and they wanted to get home to their loved ones for whatever reason. So, you know, the press you, know, you mentioned before just now is is going to attack them as low class individuals, and you know, um, disrespectful, and then um, the lack of manliness and, and, and everything like that. Um, it, it just it just it paints a different picture of a lot of the letters that you read, and you wonder for for every fudge letter how many. You have to think there's several. Oh, of people who are in the same but oh, but, you know, but, but they just don't thousands. you know but they, but they, they don't survive. come out right but i think well, the letters I think, don't survive they right. don't but i think when, i think survive. when people listen to this and they hear john fudge's story i think it'll surprise some people i, I think oh, that right. it, i think and i think you know when 
the letters you've done and, the, and the, I'm sure the lectures you've done to speak about it, you probably you probably get some people ask you questions that maybe, you know, some of the hardcore Civil War people, especially the Southern people, probably have issue with it or have concerns about it. But I think it's it's more commonplace than I think people think. And I think that's that's what's great about these letters that do survive. Right, right. Yeah, I think that certainly the story uh, is unsettling to people. You know, I, I think that we can't lose sight, though, of, of the fact that the misery, mm-hmm. which John speaks about and with such poignancy and the sense of injustice. And so his act of desertion, he, I would point out, he fully understood as these other men understood that this was going to hurt the Confederacy. Now, is he doing it because he has some animus toward Davis or Lee? Certainly not. But they recognized, right, that this was going to weaken the army, and and this was this was a repudiation of the Confederate cause. It's not it's not embracing the Union cause, but it's a repudiation of the Confederate cause. Yeah. And they saw well. You know, the interesting thing about Davis's response to all this in the early fall of eighteen sixty three, when again least hemorrhaging money, money men just it, losing so many, and he wants to start making examples. And Davis didn't want to do it. And and Lincoln was the same way. Because Lincoln and Davis understood, you start shooting a lot of men, you're going to have a lot of discontent on the yeah. home front. I don't think the soldiers would have stood for it. I think if Lee kept start shooting a lot of men, he'd had a real problem on his hands. But the situation was so dire that Davis had an interesting response to it, which you might be aware of. And that was to offer a pardon. And so, and I don't remember the precise dates here. I, I, it's either beginning of September, I think, Mm-hmm. Anyway, his pardon was this: come back to the army, and basically, no questions asked. No questions asked. Yeah. You come back, you won't be tried. There's no risk of getting an execution. But when he put out that pardon, it all his soldiers saw that as, yeah. "Well, I'm gonna get out of here, right? I'm gonna leave." So actually, there was another spike in desertion because they saw they had a, a free pass to do it. And there's an interesting. Later, they were sent to, I think, Secretary of War in the fall of 63 from a resident in Lynchburg complaining about the flow of Confederate deserters through Lynchburg. And he wrote to Richmond and said, we try to stop these men and we tell them, hey, where's your pass? And the soldiers point to their muskets and say, here's my pass. Wow. And I'm sure they said, enjoy Lynchburg. Have a nice day. Yep. Safe travels, right? <laughs> so I think things were pretty bad. And I think when men did that, they were making a pretty clear statement. This war right now, and how it's being waged and how we're being treated, it's not just. And does that mean, again, a repudiation of the Confederacy? I think it depended upon the soldier. Yeah. But it certainly means a strong political statement. And uh, and when we, when we give that back to these poorer Confederates, we do justice to them. Because we don't see them as, oh, these poor boys, they just were homesick and they never had shoes and they never had enough to mm-hmm. eat. And you elevate their suffering and how they understood it. And I think that's super important. Yeah. The one line that stood out to me from Fudge too was like, since the death of Charlie, I am so lonesome, I don't know what to do. I know, I know. Absolutely. But see, I love you got that quote. I know, you know why I love that quote. It's because it captures what I think all of us, I hope, feel from every day, maybe even hour. 
And that is a world that is often beyond our comprehension. Yeah. And unfortunately, we also do live in a world in which people portray things in a black and white way, which we know that's not true. No. We know that's, that's not life. But we write history too often in which we take snippets from Civil War letters, which create the perception that they had a clarity to their thinking and to their action. Well, maybe in that moment they did. But we know, as John said, I do not know what to do. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy named, he's from the 54th North Carolina, his name is James Zimmerman. His letters are fantastic after Gettysburg. The regiment had such high desertion that they encircled the regiment with guards. And one night he managed to sort of get loose. He got into a, a garden of a, of a local farmer and it was raining and lightning. And he was like a madman pulling up carrots, right? Starving. He wrote about his shame that he felt. He'd become a thief. And he said, if this war was not of my making, so not of my making. Right? And basically, I'm paying the price for other men's mistakes, but I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. right? It's a helplessness. That's a that's a, a more accurate, I think, depiction of how these men got through it from day to day. What can I do? Where are my choices? And often there weren't many. There weren't many. No. That's a, well, I mean, it just, it makes them all the more human, I think. He, Absolutely. Especially if you Absolutely. read these letters in their entirety. Like, and that's yeah. what it's about is, you know, yeah. humanizing them. Um, that, doesn't, yeah. that does not diminish the blood sacrifice no. against that does not in any way try to cast a cloud over the the undeniable heroism heroism that occurred on that battle. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to do that either. I I'm just trying to say there's a spectrum of thoughts and behavior that exists with every man. Each man was many different things. Uh, and we say that with slavery all the time. How did enslaved men and women, how did they get through the day? They wore many masks. They are always taking the temperature of the room. I had, and they always had to play a part and play a role. Yep. And of course, amongst historians, we're very interested. What kind of psychological and emotional toll did that take on enslaved people? There's this account. And it's a slave on one side of the river. I don't know which river. Man on the other side, he yells over to the slave. Something says, who are you? Right? And the slave says, I have no self. I have no self. There is the psychological damage of slavery. That's yeah. right there. Yeah, we think about these soldiers and we think about, again, is this PTSD? I don't know. I don't think that's very useful. But I think that quote that you just gave us, right? I don't know what to do. I'm going half crazy. I think it's more satisfying to see He's wrestling with these issues mm -hmm. and having a hard time making sense of them, finding clarity. I can find you, and you all know, there are plenty of Confederates who survived Gettysburg and who wrote about it with clarity and purpose and, in fact, felt more committed to the cause, even after they witnessed horrendous losses in their units. Yeah. Henry Owens in the 18th Virginia, his letter when the regiment returned to the camp outside Culpeper, Virginia, it was the original camp they had. 
prior to the Gettysburg campaign. And when they walked into that camp, they saw their shanties, they saw the fire pits. It was just like how they had left it. And it was in that moment that Henry Owen, that the loss, the devastation, he felt, he, it came to him, right? Overwhelmed him. And he didn't give up. He was certainly downcast. He said he saw one man just walk off into the woods and put his face into his hands, just completely broken down. But it was that blood sacrifice that Pickett's charge that renewed his commitment to the Confederate cause. Mm. Did he have horrible memories of that place? Was he a different man? Of course he was. But he still persisted for many reasons, right? And one of those reasons is, yeah, I've lost all my buddies. If I give up this fight now, I've dishonored the memory. Yeah. Oh, that's a very different reaction than obviously than a giant butch. Yeah, but that's what makes them human too, right? Is the like they're all reacting to it in their own way as well. Put them side by side, right? Put them side by side. We don't need it. Goes back to your first point at the very beginning of our conversation to stereotype a soldier, right? Do we need to have stereotypes of the soldiers who fight at Gettysburg? Uh, Is Henry Owens the Gettysburg soldier? He's one of them. Let's put John Futch up there. Put him side by side. Throw some more folks up there as well. You'll find some commonalities. But above all else, what we'll see is how they're wrestling with this. And that's what I, I want to know. Coping, I want to know wrestling. How they're dealing with all of it. But I think that's the fascinating part of it. Yep. I mean, read really the individual stories that Jeremiah Gages of the world and the, and the Henry Baxter's of the world at all different levels. And how people react at certain times and moments, we'll never know. It's, it depends how you know how you do it. Um, Augustus Van Horn Ellis had a moment of clarity at the Triangular Field. You know, yeah. who's to say if that 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 was a laugh, that was an impulsive thing? Yeah. You know, let's go Cromwell. We're going for a ride down the hill, or if that right. was, or or if it was that it was that something he would do another time? Or and I think that's what <clears throat> you know when you start painting with the broad brush. Um, on both sides is when you get yourself in trouble and you start using superlatives, you get yourself in trouble like this because these people are, they have, every one of these people had hopes, they had dreams, they had families, they had memories, and, and, and they're all individuals. That's why you say at the beginning, companies are made of husbands and sons and fathers. They're not a red line or a blue line. And I think, I think when you study that from that grassroots level, we say all the time, it gives you that full 360 view of not just Gettysburg, but of the entire war because it's, it's easier to relate than talk about Stonewall and Jeb and all these guys. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I just, uh, you all probably have seen uh, the Elliott map in 1864. Is it Charles? Is his first name Charles? I'm probably wrong about yep. that. Yep. But the Elliott map. I yeah, we have it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. With all the, all the graves or the burial pits that are marked, uh, remind people. Each one of those burial pits can overwhelm us. The losses are so staggering, but we almost get hardened to it. Or we don't think closely or deeply about the fact that each one of those lives, man, as you've just pointed out, both of you, these are men who had lives, horrible sense of loss for their families. Mm-hmm. And the numbers, the numbers on the one hand, they convey the significance and the importance of Gettysburg. And yet the numbers are like, oh, like can we go look at mine? Oh, this regiment lost seventy-five men. Oh, this one lost ninety-five men, and and we don't do it in a in a trivial. We're not trivializing it, but we're certainly not thinking about it very deeply. And mm-hmm. uh, it's easy, I think, to do. 
There's a photo. So I was with Ron Parrish. We talked a little bit about this before over at the Rosewoods. And one of the photographs, it's one of my favorites. The photographs are sort of looking up the hill. And you can tell whoever did that photo is an artist. I don't Gardner. I mean, there's three guys out there that are doing work. I don't think Gardner took all of them. It's impossible. But whoever took that photo, uh, there's the tiers of bodies. And at the very top of the hill, there's a row of bodies. They're all badly bloated. And one of my students said, oh, my God. She said, that man's pants, they're pulled down, like, his, including his underwear. And of course, you know, my initial reaction, I would say, these students, like, seriously? <laughs> but my students aren't like that, right? Yeah. They're not. That's what I thought. Well, this is weird because they aren't like that. They take it really seriously. I said, oh, God, you're right. And so Ron, he explained it. He, he said, what probably happened is that soldier got a wound between his hips, his groin, maybe his gut. And of course, when that happens, you're trying to feel like where it is, knowing that, of course, that's where you were struck. You're probably a goner. And he probably pulled down his pants, right? To try to find out where that wound was. And uh, that picture of his body, as he goes back to the point about the good death that Civil War soldiers imagine rarely were they able to live it out. And uh, we never should forget the tragedy of war. I, I am a big Chamberlain fan, and I know that there are times this dramatization of what happened at Little Round Top is off-putting. But I believe it's the article that he did for Cosmopolitan. So mm. just beautifully written. But in it, it captures the, the terror and the fear, but also the glory and the manliness that is on display. I'm, I, I've never quite understood now, and again, I don't, you know, I don't really have favorite generals anymore. I have favorite common soldiers. <laughs> I think. They're like, but I think you all see it, right? They become like friends. You know, I yep. go on the battlefield now, and I think of the people that I've read, who I know, and feel like I know, you know, fairly well. Um, well, Culp's Hill is, you know, when we were talking about this last night, Culp's Hill now, when we go there again, yeah. we know where we're Fitch and his brother were. You know, it looks different. It and it just different. makes it like, I, I don't know, when you know the common soldiers where they were fighting, you know, it's one thing to know where the generals were and stand where they stood, but the common soldier, you know, one guy out of hundreds of thousands, right? You're yeah. where he was yeah. when his brother was shot in front of him. You can go down to Rock Creek. Go down to Rock Creek. You, know, yeah. you can imagine that night of July 2nd into the morning of July 3rd, right? There is poor John, right? Cradling, I suspect, his brother in his arms, right? It's just, as he said, he suffered a great deal, like having to endure that. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is one of the other travesties and tragedies about how it was reported. Shame on those reporters. Shame on them. Yeah. I rarely ever say that kind of thing. I rarely feel indignant about the past because people are born into the world they're born. And, you know, I'm not one of those people who's smart enough to step outside of my own experience. I sure as hell don't expect historical actors to often do that. But in this instance, shame on them. Shame on them for not mentioning that these men had solid combat records. But shame on those reporters for not mentioning that John Fudge's brother died in his arms. And shame on them for not talking about what was happening on the Confederate home front. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you now go back there, like I said, 
I don't want to be self-righteous about it. I really don't. But you do feel like there's kind of a sense of justice, right? You can go back to that place now and you feel connected to that ground and you feel connected to John. And now you feel connected to every single man in Johnson's division who survived that. Because you know that those poor men had to line up in that hot sun uh, and stood there for God knows how long waiting for the condemned to be marched in front of them. After going through all that, right? Then subjected to that execution. Yeah. And, uh, but it makes it feel different. Right? Oh, yeah, it, it definitely. It, like, it's going to be a different right? experience going there, knowing knowing all of that. Yeah. Oh, it certainly does. And I, I didn't say there's, there's countless nameless and faceless people like John Futch. But, but I think it's great you joined us for this. We have the last couple of minutes. We want to talk about CWI real quick. But I think um, but I think it's, it's, it's great that you that you brought him to life again. And that's what's great. You know, you're studying history at a good level when you're bringing people to life and giving them voices again. You certainly have done John and Charlie, for that matter, but especially John Futch. Um, John Futch has, you know, brought him back, brought him back to life again. I think people will really appreciate hearing this and learning this story, and uh, and hopefully reading your book because your book is something that's, that's definitely want to pick that up. Well, I do it for a lot of different men. There, there's a lot. I mean, the book is a bunch of mini biographies. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, well, it's like I said, it's right up our alley because we love the soldier stories. You know, um, like I said, I read it a few years ago, and now I want to read it again because it's an, like really just I don't know, excellent book. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I think what we're doing right now. It's what's at the heart of the Civil Institute Summer Conference. We're always the second weekend in June. And if you are a listener here, you get a 15% discount to come to the conference. Yep. We'd love to have you there because it is an opportunity to talk and have conversations. We certainly have uh, historians of all walks of life. I get weary when people say, well, CWI is just academic. That's just not true. It's it's it's, it's an absolute lie. In fact, we have a lot of public historians here. there. We have yep. a lot of people from the Park Service. We have people from all stages of their career and covering a wide range of topics. And we do battlefield tours, not just at Gettysburg, but beyond. There is something there for everyone. And at lunch, we have what's called dine-ins, where you can sign up and you can meet with one of our uh, people on the faculty and they usually hand out a, a primary source and you just sit and talk it is it's this it's what we're doing right now it's relaxed it's engaging and there is something there for everybody i'm hoping you know we talked about this but i'm hoping that at some point if not this year down the road that you'll come and you'll bring your show and you'll use that as an opportunity to talk to some of the speakers man they'll be right there you can do your show and, and record it mm -hmm. we would love to have you do that it's like I said, I'm making a point with my colleagues, Ashley Lusky and Joe Titus. Um, we make it a point to get a wide range of scholars there. And these are a lot of people that are just starting off, but don't worry, I've done my background check. I know <laughs> it's it's a great lineup, and we definitely want to get for it, get uh, to we, it. I really, we, in all seriousness, we really want you there. We would love for your <laughs> listeners to come as well. We are a big believer at CWI that tends to be. We don't like people who are like, oh, this is my little posty stamp on the Gettysburg Battlefield. I know this. I know more than this person. I find all that to be somewhat just silly and off-putting. Like, hey, man, we want people to come and just enjoy themselves, learn from each other. Have a nice well, you never stop learning. None of us yeah. are union. None of us are confederate. Every one of us is learning. Everybody learns something new every single day. Anybody who tells you that they think they know it all, I guarantee you that, that they that they don't. But that's the, that's but, the time. To, that's the time to shut exactly. down, right? When I, when I hear somebody who says, I am the expert on this, and I know it better than anyone else. That is the worst. 
Oh, so so you but so you've been on Twitter, have you? Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm not on, I don't do social media really anymore. I, I don't. I do have, that is I a smart a move. I have a yeah. Facebook account, and I put some pictures of my students. And I just want to say this finally to your listeners: um, there are a lot of young people that love Civil War history. Don't mm-hmm. don't fall into that that trap where oh, you know, young people don't care anymore. The, we place almost 30 students every year at national parks, Civil War sites. That's awesome. Front, front lines of doing history. They love it. We have a Civil War Air Studies minor. We also have a public history minor as well. And there are all these kids, man. Well, you see the picture on my Facebook page. Yeah. Look how they're engaged, man. It's wonderful. With Ron Parisha. Ron's probably in his late 70s to see that cross-generational interaction, man. It's fantastic. Like I said, I'm so eager for you all to get down here to Gettysburg and to CWI when it's convenient for you all mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and meet our, our speakers and our attendees. Hell, in, in, oh. interviews, like we said, and you don't have to be on the podium to have something interesting to say. Yeah. No, yeah. we look, we look forward to, it. we'll definitely, definitely take up an offer. And just so our, just well. so our listeners know that, um, so CWI, anybody that wants to go, y'all can get 15% off. Yeah, uh, just, just use the discount code P A R and that will give you the discount. And the <clears throat> dates of that are June 9th to 14th, 2023. There's a great lineup of speakers, uh, like what Pete was saying. Um, great talks. It's a great time. Um, and it's the perfect way to go and connect with others that are studying the Civil War like we are. Because we all learn more when we can get together and talk and, it, and all that. Well, what's, what, what, what's the code again? I didn't even know the code. Uh, it's P-A-R. 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 Okay, yeah. <laughs> I was speaking to a round table. I said, we're going to give you 15% off. And they're like, so how do we do it? I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure about that part. Yeah, there's a discount code. That's it. it. I really appreciate this. I'm so glad we bumped into each other uh, over at Fourscore. And uh, I don't see you all in June. I'm I'm hoping at some point this summer, get together. and uh, Yeah, we'll be down for the anniversary. We'll be definitely down. Those those, those three harrowing days. Yeah, you know, I think so, I'm, I think I'm going to be around for those days as well. Oh, I'm not sure yet. We I, definitely are well. too. Um, but yeah. yeah, we'll just um, so yeah to our listeners. Thank you for listening to our episode. Thank you to Dr. Peter Carmichael for joining us. Thank you, Darren, for being the awesome co-host. Um, we yeah. we will be back with all of you. Um, our next episode after this one is going to be about Spotsylvania, and then we will be taking a trip back to the Western Theater to talk about the Battle of Pickett's Mills. Um, oh, so fascinating places. Who's, who's doing Spotsylvania? I'm sorry, I'm interested, right? Who's, who's speaking on Spotsylvania? Uh, just the well, two of just, us. It's going to be just us. Two oh, just yeah. Two, yeah, just the two of us. That's yeah, cool. it's going to be just a regular episode. So, um, wow. Yeah, we don't we don't yeah. do a lot of guests. We do time to time, but yeah, yeah. so... So, um, but yeah, we'll just be us. We'll talk a little bit about Emory Upton, talking about, you know, talking about that battle. The mule shoe was a great one. Then we'll be talking about Pickett's Mill. We'll be talking about that, which is a great battlefield just outside of Atlanta. So, um, so. Ambrose Spears's, uh, yeah. Uh, that's a great piece. Huh? Crime of Pickett's guy. Mills. That's definitely going to come up in, that, that'll definitely yeah. come up in our episode. Yeah. But yeah. So, yeah, thanks to our listeners. Thank you, uh, Dr. Thanks. Peter Carmichael, for joining it. us and Darren and everybody. We will see you all next episode. Yeah.